Welcome to the Elite Level Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Elaine, and this is the podcast where we explore how elite performers think, act, and operate. We've got a very, very special guest indeed on this week. So, Steve, it's great to see you. Good to see you. Thank you, Alex. Appreciate you coming on. So, Steve, it would be great if in two minutes or less you can tell us a bit about who you are, what you do, and some of your career highlights. Sure. Okay. But So, my name is Steve Harris, career and lifetime recruiter, really, within the tech industry. A lot of sales hiring amongst that. So, I've been in recruitment for well over 20 years, seen a lot of startup activity, a lot of senior level recruitment across globally, in, in fact. So extensive recruitment experience globally in high tech. That's fantastic. Very, very succinct indeed. And I thought this was a fantastic opportunity just to bring a slightly different spin really to the pod. We've had sales leaders on account executives and SDRs, but what we really haven't had is that angle coming from, you know, a recruitment perspective and you Mm. see and hear from so many candidates. So before we start to talk about some of the tactical things, let's just learn a little bit more about some of your your earlier point of your career. Mm. How did you get into recruitment and what was the original appeal? Yeah, it's a, a good question. And I've thought a lot about it, obviously, before today. And, and, you know, you know your own journey well, but when you start to think about it, there are there are certain interesting points. And I fell into recruitment, as a lot of people do. I went to an agency for an interview to consider and look at other opportunities. I was very young. I was in my early 20s, didn't really know what, what I wanted to do, as a lot of people find. And they said, well, actual fact, we've got a position here in the agency. We think you'd be quite good at that. So, uh, so why not? Let's give it a go. And as they say, the rest is history in many ways. And that was in the construction business. So I did that for a couple of years, recruitment, which was, well, you got to start at seven in the morning and that's just not for me. Well, it wasn't. I do that now, but it wasn't back then. But yeah, it was a really interesting journey. So I've been in recruitment since then, evolved into IT recruitment and found quite quickly, almost by mistake, that recruitment was being done very badly. So I then started my own business when I was 28 years old which I, I had and managed and grew for 20 years. Wow. You, you mentioned recruitment being done very badly. Help us understand what does recruitment being done badly actually look like? Yeah, it's a good question. It, it, it's lack of understanding of candidates and a lack of interest in your customers and what they're looking for really just led to the CV effectively being the product and shared with a customer, whether it was right, wrong or indifferent. And it was very easy and very quick to bring yourself above the rest as a consequence of that. So it was great in many ways, you know, because you could be a superstar really quickly and really easily. But as it evolved a lot more, there was a lot more people in, in it. There was a lot more companies recruiting, especially in the IT and the tech sector. For example, I was very lucky enough to start recruiting for Cisco when there were four people in the UK. It was a lucky cold call, no more or less than that. And then for many years, they were, a, they were a great customer following, following that. So you've got to do the job properly. You've got to care about what you're doing. You've got to care about your candidates. You've got to be able to qualify them correctly. And you've got to do the same for your customers. And I found that if you do those two things in recruitment, a lot of the rest follows. Got it. So it's so much to unpack here with you, Steve. So you said at 28, you went and started up your own agency in essence, because you'd seen all of these things in the marketplace mm. and you thought, I can probably do this better. I can raise the bar. So let us into that experience of you actually setting up your own business. Walk us through that first six months, that first year. Mm. It was pretty intimidating, pretty scary. When you're 
one of the performers in the agency that I was, and I remember that experience very well. You get a little bit cocky and you think, well, I'm pretty good at this. Of course, I can do my own business. But the reality of it is much harder than that. And, you know, all of a sudden, everything is down to you. And cutting deal is making a placement, as they call it, cutting a deal, whichever way we don't want to look at it, is what puts food on the table. So all of a sudden, it goes from something from a career point of view to something that that feeds your family or not, as the case may be. So you start to learn how to prioritize, focus, plan very quickly, or you don't eat. Simple as that. Wow. That says a lot. And I think it talks a lot to your character. I think even when I look at starting up this podcast, right, coming into it initially, you see it maybe as one thing and thinking I can make this happen. And even though I've not necessarily taken it to the heights I know it will go to, I've already had to recruit two other people to uh, to actually help just with the pure post-production. So mm. I completely understand that premise sometimes being in at the deep end, even when you might not necessarily know it. So one thing I want to do is just fast forward a little bit, right? So you've now come out of, from what I gather, setting up your own organization, judging from the fact that you're at the company that you're at now. Mm. So help us understand, why did you step away if you have stepped away from the business that you did and actually gone back into the tech world, in essence, as a senior director in Mm. recruitment? Mm. Yeah, great question. It was, I suppose, relatively straightforward decision. For me, I don't have the business any longer. It taken its course in many ways. And I think the thing is, when you have your own small business, it's very easy to find yourself unable to learn from people. And that's no disrespect to the people that worked for me at the time. Many of them are very successful in multiple different role types right now. Most of them we keep in touch. And in fact, one of them is a mentor for me and I'm a mentor for him. So, so phenomenal memories. But it had taken its course and uh, I desperately needed to learn from other people. You might be good at something, but it doesn't make that something the whole something. And, and it was an interesting lesson, actually, because I, I, I was starved of knowledge and needed not just mentors, but other people who were different to me, who had different experiences to me. And, and at the same time, internal recruitment had started to become a genuine business within a business where it wasn't just, you know, recruiters putting CVs forward to hiring managers that, you know, recruiters actually started to get a seat at the table, impact strategy. And that was the point when I thought, okay, that's for me. It wasn't an ego thing about having the seat at the table is if you can actually impact the way that somebody's recruiting, you can impact the future of their business because they're of course always looking for the best candidates. So what does the best candidate look like? And you can help that company go on a journey. And so my first, you know, internal recruitment position was nearly 10 years ago now and it never looked back. Wow. And it's, uh, as you say, 10 year run now back being back in the, in the hot seat, so mm-hmm. to speak. So you, you said before part of your impetus to go and start up your own venture was recruitment being done badly. So now as you reflect over the last 10 years, and, and I'd also appreciate a perspective over the last 12 months, what do you feel the state of that same market is right now? as you compare it to, to the initial impetus to start your own business? Yeah. Actual fact is, because I deal with external recruiters often, they do really well now. The expertise, the organizations, the agencies, as you might call them, have really evolved and developed. They've got phenomenally good education, coaching, and develop their recruiters. It's a proper business now. You know, where maybe when I started my business, it really wasn't considered a proper business other than a few smaller organizations who grew 
organically and through acquisition where now it's it's something somewhat different you know people might decide to go into recruitment rather than fall into recruitment which is what was happening in my day and i talked to a lot of recruiters who are not only very good at their job but very passionate about their job and really understand how it should be done well so it's great to see that market develop and evolve and become something i always wanted it to and it was nice to be part of that Absolutely. And I think it says a lot to how many markets in in a lot of different industries have actually just risen the bar now, right? Mm. It seems like customer requirements are growing, candidate requirements are growing, expectations have increased, right, year on year. And as a result, if organizations haven't been able to keep pace with that, then ultimately they're going to fall behind. So it's it's brilliant to hear that as you fast forwarded in time, mm. those organizations have been able to now really raise the bar and, and take things that little bit further. What I'd like to now explore with you is a bit about recruiters specifically. And as we are the elite level podcast, what really separates average recruiters from elite level recruiters? Goodness, there's a lot of ways I could take that <laughs> question. I was expecting it and of course thought about it on, on the way in extensively. For me, I think one of the key differences is the level in which you you care, the level in which it actually matters. A top-level recruiter, specifically talking about internal recruiters now, because that's the relevance to me immediately, is they'll look back at the people that they've hired and be excited about the ones they've hired who are making an impact in the business. And if they can then start to understand is, well, what does good look like? You know, and really care. And, and, and indeed, and I talk to my teams about it is if you've got a candidate who you're on that journey with, who all of a sudden you think this isn't right for that candidate or this candidate isn't right for this business, address it. Let's have that conversation. Let's be grown up about it because you're impacting not just the company and the company's future, but that individual's future. And, you know, they have families, a life to evolve and, and develop. They've got to feed themselves, you know, so, so I think. Honesty and a real passion to make a difference. And, and of course, in internal recruitment, you actually genuinely can. The powerful point, really powerful. When I think about criteria that I often hear from a lot of organizations nowadays, we, we, they talk about intelligence, coachability, some of these other types of things, and, and then trying to understand how do you measure against those same characteristics. So what I'm curious to get your perspective on is when we use the word care, how can you actually identify or, or measure recruiters' level of care to then be in a position where you can help them get better? Mm. I think you've got to look at how they prepare and plan themselves. That's important for, in my opinion, for anybody to be successful. You don't prepare and plan, then you know it's it's avoiding all the cliches. You're just not going to be as successful as you as you would like to be. But for me, I consider my job is allowing and enabling the recruiters to really understand what their job is the impact of their job and then from there it's monitoring you know that the, the relationships they have with their candidates the relationships they have with their stakeholders the hiring managers the impetus they're having do they have a seat at the table are they considered a business partner are they asking the right questions of the right people at the right time and it's becoming not a recruiter but a business partner that i really look for and there's a point in which that flips where it becomes real and that is the point in which the you know that recruiter is then on the right journey. Yeah, and it's a great point, Steve, because it's not something I've heard as often when people talk about care and, and compassion. Mm. But as a candidate, it's very powerful because when engaging with recruiters, you, you can feel where there's a level of almost genuine vested interest versus 
just knowing that you maybe got a, a commission check label mm. over your head and that person just driving to get you in a seat, it absolutely does make a difference. What I'd now like to kind of pivot to is you've interviewed and, and seen and connected with, I'm sure, thousands of, yeah. of sales professionals over that 20-year career. So let's start to unpack a little bit about your observations of candidates themselves. What is it that you are really looking for when you're looking for talent, whether it's for your organization or, or talking wider to that? Yeah. I've watched one of your your other podcasts and you use the, I think the phrase, peel back the layers a little bit. And it's that in a lot of ways. And when I first started to recruit, especially salespeople, but technical people, that's a whole different direction. And I've recruited a lot of technical as well. My team's currently recruit a, a huge amount of technical people. So they're different, but there's a lot of similarities. You've got to start peeling back the layers of the human, but also of the skills. But let's talk about salespeople because that's what we're here to do. So they'll give you their pitch and then it's a matter of peeling back those layers a little bit. So for example, I'll often ask a salesperson I'm interviewing to case study a win for me. That's very interesting. The details of that is always very interesting, but also look at the psychology of a little bit. Now I'm not a psychology expert, but I've been in recruitment a long time and you learn a bit and you know, you've got to look at when they use I, when they use we, and are they using it at the right time? And you can't fake that. If you involved a team at the right time, and there's no enterprise salesperson, successful one at least, that doesn't involve good team of people, you know, extensive often. If you use the we's and the I's in the right places, then that's the salesperson that's driving a deal, that's qualifying a deal and involving the right teams at the right times. But then, of course, you find the ones who don't use them in the right places. And that's just character revealing. And very often they're restricted by their own ego. But I also, not only do I ask them to case study a deal, I ask them to case study a loss. That will also reveal some interesting things. I remember a, a salesperson, and there's been more than one, but one sales interview, and of course, no names and circumstances mentioned, but the case studied a, a loss. It was fair. You know, no salesperson can win every deal. It's, it's life. And I thought, oh, that sounds fair. And so I'd say, well, what would you do differently? How do you feel? What was re really the impact of, of that? And, and he said, oh, I think it was the SE. I'd, I'd have a different sales engineer. And, and of course, it was at that immediate point that I'd switched off with regards to, you know, that salesperson being a candidate for the next stages, because blaming somebody else or product is just not something. Occasionally it happens. Occasionally it's real. And yes, it will happen where, where an SE is not the right SE or the product is not the right product. But number one, don't blame them. And number two, find it out as early as you can. Yeah. Great points there, Steve. Actually, I was, I was just kind of sitting, taking it all in a little bit. I mentioned on a previous podcast, the concept of extreme ownership from the, the book, Jocko Willink's book, which ultimately the, the bottom line of the book talks to agnostic of what circumstances you find yourself in, just always taking true ownership and accountability and always looking inwardly mm. to say, what more could I have done? How could I have better evangelized that message to my team to drive the outcome? And when I think of any of the transformative deals I've, I've ever done in my career, and even the smaller ones, they've never been done with an eye, you know, even the ones for a thousand pounds or a thousand dollars or even less, there's always been some kind of involvement or, or needing to get everyone behind a unified message. So really powerful points that you've mentioned there. I do want you to go a little bit level two or level three with this though, Steve, because I think some people might look at that and say, okay, got it. 
you've heard, listened out for the wheeze, you've listened out for the eyes, but what else is there intrinsically that you're looking out for in that person and their DNA to say, actually, is this the type of person I want within my organization? Because I can only assume it doesn't just stop at, you know, looking for the case studies on either side. Yeah, no, it, it doesn't. There's a lot more to, to just the case studies. For me, I think a lot of people use DNA and maybe it's overused statement, but I actually quite like it. It's very relevant. You know, a company has a DNA and an individual has a DNA. But I think the reality is, is the good salespeople, feedback, for example, I love the phrase feedback. I'll look for circumstances when an individual would have sought feedback from a mentor. That doesn't necessarily have to have been their boss. It could be anybody. Often, in fact, it's a successful salesperson in the company or, or that they've worked with in the past. And seeking feedback is sounds super easy. It's very hard to do. It's very hard to genuinely accept critical feedback because most people, if they say, give me some feedback, you know, I'd really like to, to know your thoughts. Of course, everybody wants their ego stroked right there. They don't want to be told that they did that wrong or could have done it differently. They want to be told how well they did it. But if you genuinely ask for feedback, hope for something that you can develop and, and learn from. So I look into the person with regards to how they do that what learning points there were in their career, because you don't start as a great salesperson, you have to learn and become one, even if you have all the right characteristics. I've met so many salespeople, Alex, I'm sure you have the same. There's no one same person. There's no one ego or character or background that says, oh, I'm going to be a salesperson, a successful salesperson. Of course I am. So no, you've got to look at the learnings for me. And that's what I've looked at for my own career is where have you got to? What have you learned? Who from? Then how did you apply it? You know, so I'll talk to, you know, if you're interviewing somebody, there's the old question of take me through your CV. I might say that. I might put it in a different way. What I'm looking for is the story. Tell me the story. How did you start? How did that end? Why did you move to the next opportunity? What did you learn from the previous opportunity? How did you apply that in the new opportunity? And then rinse, repeat, ask the same question. Listen to the answers and then further qualify, peel back the layers. And then to really understand not the psychology of it, but the drive of the individual as to whether or not they've been in sales three years or, or 30 years. It doesn't make any difference. How have they applied that? How have they then applied that to customers and to sales? How do they react when a sale hasn't gone the way that they wanted to? How do they apply the learnings from that? So without making them feel uncomfortable, it's really understanding how they evolve from that perspective. Got it. Fascinating stuff. Curious to know, what are the biggest red flags that you've typically come across with candidates? Are there any trends or certain points where you just could say to out there to listeners, when I hear these things or this type of thing specifically, it's just an immediate, this isn't going to work out? Yes, there is. I mean, we covered it before. The blame game is one of them. When I hear blame, that's always a red flag for me depending on the type of blame that it is and how extreme it is, depends on whether I dig into it a little bit more or it immediately is just a strong red flag and I just kind of move on having almost made up my mind. But actual fact, it's not so much about what people say, it's about what they don't say, I find very interesting. If you're a successful salesperson, you have to be good at questioning. You also have to be good at listening. And if I ask a question of a candidate and the answer is, just a bit skinny, it's just not much information, then you've got to ask why. What good salesperson would be happy with that answer? So, of course, you do the right thing, you ask another question, and you peel back the layers a little bit more. But that's the not just the frustration, but the, the sadness in many cases is, is they're exposing themselves 
almost as a salesperson's uh, weakness as their Achilles heel is they're not asking questions and they're not answering questions and there's just no detail to it. This is a very valuable stuff, actually, certainly to hear it from the perspective of someone with as much tenure as you in in recruitment. I want to move into the topic around LinkedIn and and CVs a little bit, because you've mentioned CV a couple of times in the conversation so far. As I'm sure isn't a surprise to many, I'm a bit of a LinkedIn fanboy and, and spend a lot of time on LinkedIn. And I've put a lot of intentional focus on trying to create a, a brand that, that adds a lot of value to the community, but also, you know, puts me in a position where I can be recognized for the contributions that I've made and, and, and all of the value that I'm able to put out there. The question in all of that is what is your stance on how people should be thinking about a LinkedIn profile? versus a CV, or actually, do you not really see them as mutually exclusive? Do they require equal time and attention in this era? Yes, it's a bit of both. It's difficult to answer that specifically, so I'll split them if I can. The CV's always got a time and a place, I think. If, if you've got to the point in your role and, and you've decided that you want to move on, for whatever the reason that might be, do a CV, do a good CV. Take some time and really help it to reflect, because the hiring authorities do read it. They genuinely do. They do use it at the interview. Sure, probably 15 minutes after the interview, it becomes you know null and void. But up until that point, you need something. But there's a lot of people who are maybe not so sure whether they're ready for another move. Of course, as we work in a world with, within high tech where there's a lot of headhunting. You know, and do you want to get headhunted for a role that maybe you're interested, maybe you're not, and then spend a couple of hours on a CV and maybe not in the right frame of mind either? So I think your LinkedIn profile is really, really important. In fact, within our business and within our teams, we spend time talking about it. But it's a business tool, not just a career tool. And so, you know, it's interesting. You look at somebody's LinkedIn profile, you can almost tell if they're looking for a job because are they selling their company? Are they selling themselves but without almost their CV in hand? Or sometimes they're just written like a CV. You may have seen it or you may not have, but you can apply for jobs where apply using your LinkedIn profile is a button and it basically will will attach your LinkedIn profile. And so you can see a lot of people's LinkedIn profiles look like a CV. And other than that, a lot of them don't do anything with them. And they just look like they've worked there, then they work there, then they work there. No information. you know. But as a salesperson, and I've spoken to a number of salespeople about this within the business, my current company and my previous company, is why do you not put a lot more effort into your LinkedIn profile? Because surely if you're prospecting or even if you're going to a a customer meeting that was arranged for you, are they not going to research you as a salesperson? Who's coming in to see me today? What do they do? What's their history? Oh, they've been at this company six months and then they were at their previous company six months. And it's like, oh, okay. They'll form opinions. You know, they could be right opinions, wrong opinions, but it doesn't make any difference. They're their opinions and they'll be difficult to change. Where if you've got a really credible a story, you've got some social media, you've got some opinions, just like you, Alex, you've got, you know, the podcasts, but also there's a lot more to your LinkedIn profile than just podcasts. And all of a sudden, as a prospect or a customer that you might be looking after, who is a customer, then they'll look and they will either consciously or, or subconsciously score you as a supplier to them. Awesome. There's uh, phenomenal insights coming out of this. So if you are watching this on YouTube, please be sure to smash that like button, comment, share and subscribe. And if you're listening on any of the podcasting platforms, please ensure to leave us a five star review to pay testament to all of the wonderful wisdom we're getting here from Steve at the moment. 
Question on all of this, Steve, is we've spoken a bit about experience and you've gone into great detail about LinkedIn and things like that. The topic of job hopping is something that's probably been relevant and, and re- continues to be, where when we look in tech and, and SaaS and software, average tenures are, are probably spanning anywhere from 18 months to two years. You'll probably have better data on this than me. And we're seeing, you know, people being a little bit more comfortable making moves after a relatively short period of time. Whereas I look at someone like yourself, you, you seem to have, you know, good solid tenure, certainly where you are and in previous roles. So from a recruitment standpoint, help us understand a bit more about what good looks like as it relates to tenure in a role, experiences within a role before moving on versus what ugly looks like. Mm. <laughs> Interesting question. And one that I'm probably dealing with on a weekly basis. And there is no right or wrong answer. There probably is good or bad. You know, there's a, and there's a lot of individual situations. Let's be super honest. Job hopping looks like job hopping and invariably is. And it's, it is for a reason. And, you know, I've spoken to a lot of candidates where they're, you know, well, I was being successful and this happened and that happened and, and, and what have you. And actual fact, it sounds super believable and invari- invariably it is. But then you've got, then simply they just leave themselves open to having their decision making questionable, you know. So whichever route they take as an excuse, they're down a rabbit hole because the obvious one to avoid is obviously as a salesperson, you weren't successful. Nobody wants to admit that. So they'll make up something else. Invariably it is made up. And sorry for everybody that's out there that is, that is the victim of this and, and I'm wrong. But for the majority of the time, I'm correct. But so then they'll just take themselves down another down another rabbit hole and 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 have their question making, their decision making questioned. So you know, how do you deal with it? And I think extreme honesty, first of all, is is the way to deal with it. If you have made a bad decision, that's okay. And I do have quite a number of candidates over the years, over the decades, in fact, where they might have had a tenure of five, six, seven years in one organization. And then all of a sudden they're in a company for six months and they call you common and fine because they have made a bad decision or something's changed and something's happened. And it's all very believable. Even a bad decision, we've all made bad decisions. You can't be crucified for that, but it's accepting it and understanding what that decision was, why you made it and how to change it moving forward. So those circumstances, if you've been with a company for some time, you've then made a mistake and your tenure is less than a year. No recruiter or even, well, the hiring managers sometimes take a little bit more to persuade that's okay. But certainly the recruitment community will be fine with that. They'll understand it. They'll qualify it, be prepared to answer some tough questions, but it's it's usually, you know, we understand why it happens. When all of a sudden it's six to 12 months here, six to 12 months there, it's starting to show a pattern and it can be overcome. You know, and I've hired salespeople with that kind of pattern, but guess what? Maybe they're in a new business sales role and they've been guided that way by a mentor or a, or a former boss. But in actual fact, maybe that's not what they're best at. You know, so they've joined an organization. It's not worked out. They've left. And the same thing happens the next time. Well, maybe they're a fantastic account manager or maybe the reverse applies, you know, or it's the technology. Often there is a reason but too many people aren't prepared to make that change and just step back and go, right, okay, what's going on here? Who can I talk to that can help me understand me and make some change? You know, so I've interviewed people where they've said, Steve, honestly, the last couple of roles just weren't right for me. What do you think? Help me. And I have, you know, and in fact, I've stopped some interviews even after 15 minutes and I've gone, I'm really sorry, 
I don't want to just do the polite thing and let this go on for three quarters of an hour, knowing right now there's not a chance you're going to get hired for this job. So why don't we stop this, have a coffee, and let's talk about your career and see if I can help you and direct you in some way. And I've done that a few times. You know, you've got to be really know what you're doing when you do do that. It's not something that happens commonly, but it has helped. And we've indeed hired people that in that situation before where they've understood that maybe there's a different career direction for them. And they take it and they're successful. So I'm not sure if that answered your question, Alex. Yeah, there was a, a lot in that, actually. Mm. And I was reflecting on certain decisions I've made in the past, right? Certainly decisions I've made that have, have been less favorable. And, uh, you know, I've been a little bit in one role and then out. And then other experiences that have been transformative. And I've been able to, to have a slightly longer run and go on and, and grow. But I think that the biggest thing that I've often noticed is I'm always looking for that point where I, I don't feel I'm learning or growing any further. And so there's been a couple of moves I've made where actually I've been earning very, very well and on paper doing phenomenally well, but feeling like I'd hit a ceiling in terms of my growth and development. And so I can, I guess, from the candidate perspective, relate to a little bit of everything that you touched on in terms of being in those various different seats at different times. But to your point, there there is no one size fits all, is there? It's about trying to make the, the right decisions at the right time, play chess, not checkers with your career as best you can, right? So that's all we're ultimately trying to do. Let's talk a little bit now. You're obviously been at the organization that you've been at for a fair bit of time now. And one thing I'm curious to understand is when you're you're now looking for candidates at this stage, what are the kind of key things that you're really looking for? I see some recruiters have a big focus on bringing in talent that has experience within the industry and within, you know, for example, customer experience or whatever the case is. And then other organizations that have a bigger focus, maybe on the talent, how the candidate themselves comes across and maybe less focus on actually their experience in their background. So I'd just love to get your perspective on whether you have a lean left or right, or whether it's a little bit broader than that? Yeah, it'd be a slightly different answer maybe to what you're expecting, but it's a daily conversation in, in my world, especially in sales. And I've got multiple experiences in my current role and my previous role, whereby the sales leader will say, you know, Steve, we need to, we need to hire A candidates. If I had a pound for every time I've heard that phrase, I'd be extraordinarily wealthy, man. And I'm like, well, okay, what does an A candidate look like? You know, and they've got to have this experience. And of course, you know, when you really filter it down, they're asking for the top performing salespeople from your top five competitors. Well, give me one good reason why the top performing salespeople from your top five competitors want to join that company. Not just the company I'm at now, any situation. Why would you do that? You know, there's got to be a real compelling reason. So I'll often talk about then P candidates, you know, because who wants to hire a, a B candidate, which is basically somebody that's kind of average, you know? You know, if you're one of 10 salespeople and where are you on the leaderboard? You know, it, it's one of those awkward conversations. But what I talk to the hiring managers about is let's look closer at the sales process. Let's actually look at what happens. Because in, in the example of my current company and, and customer experience and contact center, yes, they're like, oh, we want people from the customer experience and the contact center background. Of course we do. They understand the product and therefore, theoretically, the buying mentalities. But in fact, do they? So other than some of the top performers, what about the rest? So in my previous company is probably one of the best examples. We'd hired a lot of people with the experience 
that they wanted specifically. And they hadn't worked out. Why hadn't they worked out? Because in actual fact, the sales process within the company um, I was employed at at the time was slightly different. But people weren't particularly aware of that. So people had come and gone. We'd had a few job hoppers, to your point, that had passed through the doors. And it was like, well, we're a good company. It can't just be us. And they're good salespeople. It can't just be them. What's happened? So we looked further, actually, at what was really happening. And we looked at the sales process. So then we found comparable markets, different products, comparable markets, with a similar sales process. And we recruited some salespeople. One is still there as one of the top performers who had no idea about the product, none, zero. And whose sales process, the buyers and the influencers in the customer base were exactly the same. And so they knew how to sell, question, move to the next stage, involve the right people. And all of a sudden, they were more successful and quicker than the people from the typical historical marketplace. So I've tried to go through that journey and starting to be successful within my current company. And of course, you can't blame a sales leader for knowing what they want, knowing what they think good looks like, and focusing on that. But you've got to try and test that sometimes. And I'm pleased to say in the last year, we've, we've been successful at doing that. And that's proving the right decision as well. So it can be done, but it's not easy. There's a lot of blinkers. Well, kudos to you on, on all of those successful hires. Curious now on almost the flip side of the fence. Tell us about some bad hires you've made. Of course, no names, no organizations. Mm. But, you know, it, it's great to see that you made some phenomenal hires. You're driving the business forward. But I'm sure over 20 years that there's been a fair share of maybe hires that you've made or hiring decisions that you've made that on hindsight, maybe you, you'd have done differently moving forward. So just help us peel back the layers of some of those hires that were maybe less desirable. Yeah, it's, uh, I'm pleased to say there's not many, but there are a few that I can think of. Obviously, no details will be shared, both in my own teams in the past, a long way in the past, I'm pleased to say, but also that I've recruited for the business. And you know what? The one common theme that runs across all of those is they look like they've got exactly the right experience you need at exactly the right time. So what happens is you get carried away and excited by the potential of that, and you forget to qualify. You don't qualify as well as you should. You don't ask all of the right questions, because all of a sudden, you've got this person who's just got the perfect background. You're sat opposite them. You click, and you're having a good conversation. You'll think, this person's perfect. When in actual fact, you then completely forget to do all of the basics. And I'm a big believer in the basics for all of us. You know, the most successful people I've ever, I've ever known practice the basics every day. You know, so the, every time I've made an unsuccessful hire, I've missed doing the basics for the euphoria of what I believe is, is a perfect match. Got to tell us what are the basics, Steve? <laughs> <laughs> it's effort and awareness i think effort honesty awareness focus you've really got to be passionate you know if you want to be successful in any business as far as i'm concerned you know i can only relate it to to the businesses that i've been in you know i don't know anybody that does a 30 a 30 hour week and isn't and is successful and maybe a rocket scientist or a brain surgeon i don't know i couldn't speak to that but certainly in the businesses that i know you know there are some people that want to wake up in the morning and and make that day count and then there are others that want to wake up in the morning and get through the day. You know, it's easy to understand which one is which and which one is going to be the most successful. So for me, the basics is, is really all about effort, feedback we talked about, learning, 
And like I'd mentioned with my business, I got to the point where I wasn't learning and it, and, and it just it didn't sit well with me. It wasn't comfortable. So if every day, you know, you don't strive to learn, you don't work hard and you don't plan, they're the basics as far as I'm concerned. So I'm, I'm glad you unpacked those. And the work ethic and working hard piece, uh, the reason I find that just an interesting one in this era is because there's a lot more talk than there's probably been before around burnout, people slowing down, you know, finding a, a better groove around quote unquote balance. Although I've probably been someone that maybe is a little bit controversial in the space because I look over my entire career and the reality is, is that hard work certainly beyond the norm has been thematic since day one. And since I took my, my very first role, my, my work ethic, I would not describe as, as normal, you know, even to this day, I'm not content enough being elite in my role as a sales professional. I, I seek to do more as to why we're sitting across mm -hmm. from each other right now. With that being said, that the rhetoric is growing around almost a, I don't want to say an opposite narrative, right? But people trying to say, well, look, you don't need to work as hard. You need to slow things down a little bit. Whereas I say, well, you need to work smart and hard. Love to get your thoughts on how you think about work ethic and actually whether you feel someone like myself in terms of just that pace mindset is actually becoming outdated. I'd, I'd be curious to have your perspective on that. Yeah, it, certainly. No, it's, I don't think it's becoming outdated work ethic and effort has always been my DNA. For me, I can't see it ever changing. If you want to be truly successful, then the, the effort has to be there. But there's got to be a balance. And I think the last couple of years, we've probably all learned a lot in terms of our mental health and you know the pandemic. And I've certainly learned a great deal. At the same time as the pandemic, I came across, or shortly after, probably the busiest time of my career, in fact, you know, and, and, and so that's really tough. You know, you, you wake up in the morning, you start your day, and then all of a sudden, 12, 13 hours later, you realize you haven't had lunch, you've eaten, but you've eaten at your desk and you come out of your office, your home office and, and your back aches. And, and, you know, then you do the same thing the next day. But I think as much as you've got to have some discipline with work, you've got to have some discipline outside of work. You know, so I've always tried to keep weekends for myself and my family. Very rarely do I work at a weekend, and I'm sure I'm happy to if there's a, a huge compelling reason and it's a, it's a one-off. And, and that enables me to feel comfortable in my own skin that I am doing 12, 13-hour days. Don't get me wrong, it's not every week, but it's, it's, it's often enough for it to be a thing. But that's okay, as far as I'm concerned. Monday to Friday is how I look after my family, how I achieve my personal goals by achieving my professional goals. And then the weekends, that's how I enjoy it. A couple of other things from me, Steve. You spoke just now about your kind of professional goals and some of your, your, your personal ones as well. Just a bit of a pivot question with regards to salespeople, the rhetoric of being money motivated. How does that land with you as a recruiter when someone says to you, actually, Steve, I'm, I'm here for the money. I'm here to earn. That's my primary motivation. I'd be worried if a sales per, you know, it's on a salesperson's top three motivators wasn't money or something linked to money somewhere but it's very rarely just money because you know what does that lead to sometimes the younger people and i certainly don't blame them for it you've got to start somewhere you know want the money and it it strokes their ego and it moves them to the next level but as you evolve and, and you mature a little bit you get a family for example or you've got multiple hobbies that need feeding and paying for 
you know, so I think you just evolve as humans. We evolve. You know, I wish I, I, I knew when I was 20 what I know now. And, and I'm, I'm sure, I'm not so sure my direction would have been any different, but it might have been more rapid, for example. I probably would have been retired by now. <laughs> I think it's an interesting point you were making. I think everyone's ultimately got very different motivations. I completely agree with you that if money is the sole motivation you'll find yourself in a bit of a challenging one when you've had a bad month, quarter or year, mm. which is bound to happen to almost anyone, right, at a particular stage. Mm. So I think it's having motivations that go a little bit beyond. And, you know, I can think back to days where my dream was to have an Audi R8 and this dream apartment and all of these other things. And then you start ticking things off, off your list and you say, I thought this was the this was the thing that was meant to change everything. And you actually start to realize, no, I've got to be more purpose led in what I'm actually here to do. And I know for me now, driving legacy, knowing that I'm someone who's here to really make a difference on others, add value to the sales community. And a big part of what I'm trying to achieve with this pod is to really up level the way that the world thinks about everything that we do in software sales from recruitment and all of the other angles. So this conversation, even on a personal level, has been truly fascinating for me from that perspective. Steve, I have one final question for you, which is, uh, you may have seen that the final question I ask everyone, which is if you were talking to anyone out there that is currently wherever they are in their career and they want to get to performing at an elite level, what would your number one piece of advice be to them? Work hard, be honest, including especially with yourself and strive to learn every day. I think that will take you in the right direction. And that's not only the advice I would give to you know, the community listening to this, that's the advice I give to my family. So work hard, try and make a difference, make sure you're learning along the way, try and have a bit of fun. Wonderful. Well, we can embrace ourselves as part of your extended family here at <laughs> yeah. the Elite Level Podcast. So thank you so much for coming on. It's, it's been wonderful. To anyone who's watching again on YouTube, really would appreciate your support by liking, commenting, sharing and subscribing. And if you are listening in on any of the podcasting platforms, a five star review, we would be very, very grateful for that. So I appreciate you all tuning in and we'll see you on the next one.